Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. First and foremost, it's been a human tragedy with mounting numbers for the ill and the dying. But at least at the beginning, it seemed to be largely limited to the human toll. That is, until this week, when Apple was the first to say what we all more or less expected, that the epidemic is also going to hurt business and the economy, maybe in ways we're only beginning to appreciate. But just as the disease hits some and leaves others untouched, some companies and sectors may be hurt worse than others. Walmart says it won't join Apple in taking down its forecast, at least not yet, while concerns for the auto industry have led Japan to create a task force to deal with the potential hit to demand for and supply of cars. So which is it? A temporary blip in the first quarter or the start of something more troubling that could last longer? And which business sectors are the most vulnerable? For our Wall Street Week Roundtable, we welcome now Jillian Tett. She's chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large for the Financial Times, and Seema Hingarani. She's managing director at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So welcome, both of you. It's great to have you here. So answer the question for us, Jillian. Are we underestimating, are the equity markets in particular underestimating the potential effect of coronavirus? The reaction from the equity markets has been really quite stark and extraordinary because if you think back to what happened with SARS, you had quite a significant drawdown in the equity markets. What you've had this time round has barely been one week of drawdown, of reaction, before the markets bounce back. And what's doubly significant is not only is the coronavirus still considerably unknown in terms of its bigger economic impact and human toll, 
But of course, China these days is dramatically more important for the global economy and for most Western companies than it was in the time of SARS. So very stark difference. And in my view, there's an awful lot of correction yet left to come. So, Simon, what are you hearing from investors? How are they looking at this? I mean, is this driven largely by liquidity in the marketplace where people aren't thinking about it? Or are they taking a hard look at it and saying, we think it's not that bad? Well, I think, um, look, a lot of our clients are long-term investors. We're long-term investors. Um, we are clearly talking about this with our clients, about the coronavirus. It's top of mind. But we're sort of still in wait-and-see mode, I think. You know, I think we are, even Apple said this, that, that production starting to come back on, come back on slowly. You know, our thought is just still that into March we could be back to capacity. It's true that in the tech supply chain, where China has become a much larger part of, uh, of business for a lot of technology companies, I mean, 80% of assembly now happens in China, 65% of components are produced in China. I think it's too early to tell, and that's, that's what we're talking with our clients Do you clients have any about. sense about uh, who's hit worse and who's hit less well, uh, badly? I mean, for example, tech, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, Apple, but also chip makers and things have really been hit. Yeah. Uh, we also have retail reports, you know, that are mixed, frankly. Walmart's saying we're not worried about it. Puma got killed, basically. So who's going to hit worse and not so much? One of the very interesting things that's happened as a result of the U.S.-China trade war is that many large C-suites and companies have been forced to significantly reassess their supply chains. They weren't taking that much, paying that much attention necessarily to the minutiae of that before a couple of years back. So some of them have actually built in more flexibility than is immediately visible to the outside eye, and that may be shielding some of them. Walmart surprisingly said it didn't think there was going to be any significant hit. Um, however, we have story, you know, with Puma and Adidas basically having quite a big hit in terms of where they're. Um, feeling the pain right now. And um, I suspect we're going to see more companies coming out, particularly those with big China-based sales operations, and saying it's hurting their earnings. What about Seema? Are there some areas that you're more concerned about, some not so much? I would agree with Jillian. I think retail, apparel, mm -hmm. and semiconductors, you know, really are the prime ones that we're looking at. And perhaps travel. <laughs> I mean, travel. if you take a look at airlines, you take a True. look at hotels, you right. take a look at, goodness knows, cruise ships. Oh, exactly. The whole consumer... Uh, area is something, yeah, we clearly have to watch out for. But again, um, a lot of uh, China's economy now is driven by local demand and consumer demand there. So when you think about the impact globally, uh, I would say, again, I think it's still too early to tell about the impact globally. Clearly for the Chinese economy, it's a significant issue. I mean, the bigger question is why are stock markets so buoyant and seemingly so completely impervious to any kind of shocks? And a lot of that's to do with the fact that it really is the central bankers who are mm. the only game in town, to quite Mohamed el all those years ago. Um, and insofar as things like the coronavirus are leaving investors thinking, actually, central banks are going to leave rates lower for longer, that's actually boosting equity markets. So you have this phenomenon whereby bad news is actually turning out to be good news for equity and bond prices. Well, I think, I mean, we've read about that China is ready and prepared to implement fiscal easing. We sweat monetary easing everywhere. So I think the market's reacting to that as well, knowing that China is ready to step up and do I mean, if in doubt, do. just chuck a bit more fuel on the fire and keep it going. <laughs> well, That's long, basically the mantra. As long as it keeps going, as long as the music keeps playing. If it stops, that raises some real challenges. Exactly. There's no signs of anybody actually thinking what might happen when it will stop right now um, or any sign that central bankers are willing to stop. But if it's central bank stimulus that's really supporting this, Seema, how is an investor to draw distinctions between good investments and not so good investments? Because I mean, it's sort of the, that rising tide effect. Right. So a lot of what we talk about are uh, franchises. 
and owning franchise businesses that that can navigate you through the noise, you know, and this could be loud noise and longer term noise, we'll, we'll see. But but clearly, again, when you think out investing over 10, 15, 20 years, the focus we like to have is on franchise businesses globally. But that's a polite way of saying we're trying to get into the business of zombie spotting, zombie screening, yeah. and trying to work out, you know, which businesses and sectors are essentially being kept alive longer than they should be by this tidal wave of cheap money. But don't we and need which, to do exactly that to some extent? It might be hard. Exactly. But there are anyone zombies out there. We know it, right? <laughs> anyone who's wants to go around wearing a zombie buster T-shirt, you know, <laughs> to Ghostbuster music, that's going to be the big theme of this year. Yeah, exactly. Good Not luck only, to you finding your zombies <laughs> or avoiding the zombies. <laughs> exactly. Avoiding them, right? Not only in the United States, but also in China as well, I suspect, when you're talking about zombies. Even more in China. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, we're going to be back with our contributors shortly. Next, here, a conversation with Mohammed El Aryan, Allianz Chief Economic Advisor and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. This is Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. When markets bounced back from the initial shock of the coronavirus, some economists were quick to jump on the bandwagon. This looked like the sort of V-dip we saw with SARS back in 2003, and for that matter, just last year with the attack on a Saudi oil facility and the U.S. missile attack that killed Qasem Soleimani. But are the markets giving us an accurate read of the deeper potential effects of the coronavirus on the global economy? We asked special contributor Mohammed El Aryan. So it doesn't tell you very much. The market has treated this as a containable, temporary and reversible shock, just like the U.S. attack on an Iranian general, just like the attack on the Saudi oil production. That's how the market sees it. And it's supported in that view by nice comments about fiscal and monetary expansion. However, when you look at what's happening on the ground, David, it's completely different. You're getting sudden stops to various parts of the economy. It started in the province, it's spreading out. Now you're hearing companies in Europe and the US, Apple being the latest, having the supply chain disrupted. So I worry that the economic effects are not going to be a V. The hope is they're U, but there is a possibility of something worse than that. It also affects both supply and demand. People are not manufacturing things, particularly in Hubei's province, but also uh, Chinese people can't go to the store and buy things. They can't even get out a lot. Yes, and, and China, company after company, is now announcing that they may lay off people and not pay them. And the government is going to have to step in and save some of the more highly indebted companies. Absolutely. Like you say, and that's critical, it is both a demand shock and a supply shock. It affects trade and services. It is internal and external. So I think it's consequential. And it's not as if, as you know, that the global economy was in a great place to begin with. We, we got the data out of Japan, 6.3% contraction. Germany was stagnant. So I think... For the, for the economy, it's a bigger deal than it has been for the markets. And yet, if you listen to most economic commentators, not just market people, but economic commentators, a lot of them sort of say, we'll get past the first quarter, we'll be fine into the second. If they are overly sanguine, why? Because we've been deeply conditioned that that's what happens. I think that slowly the markets have increasingly determined two things. One is central bank policy. So in the old days, it was central banks leading the markets. Now it's markets leading central banks. And I think now also, ironically, after analysts got the Saudi wrong, after analysts got the attack that killed the Iranian general wrong, that now the markets are leading analysts as well. Now we've seen it often in the stock market. This is the first time we see economic analysts influenced so much by price action. 
So we have no idea how long it will take to get back up and running in China. That could be some extended period of time. But might there be even longer potential ramifications? For example, if I'm a company and I'm relying upon Ube province for my supply, might I think twice about really investing very much in Ube province going forward? Yeah, because if you're a company, you've realized what most of us know is your strength can become your weakness. Mm. So global supply chains are wonderful, just-in-time management, cheapest production, etc. But when they get disrupted, they are really, really problematic. And I think increasingly companies are going to realize it's efficiency versus predictability. And that trade-off in the past has gone way too far in terms of efficiency. So I think you're going to see a revisiting of this whole globalization narrative. That was our special contributor, Mohamed Arian of Allianz. For our Wall Street Week Roundtable, we welcome now Jillian Tett. She's chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large for the Financial Times, and Seema Hingarani. She's managing director at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So, Jillian, as we listened to Mohammed, it was a fairly sobering take on the underlying economy. I think deeply depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, we've talked about the equity markets don't reflect that. And you have a fascinating piece out in the FT, actually, about the University of Michigan, my alma mater, their consumer sentiment on equities that are, like, way up. Well, here's something that's fascinating. We had, obviously, equity markets hitting records this week in America. Donald Trump tweeting out, best market in history. Um, here's one number I hope he, that the president doesn't see, which is the University of Michigan releases a consumer survey each month about where stocks are going. 66% of consumers right now apparently think that equity markets are going to keep rallying over the next year. That's up from 56% a year ago. It's which sounds good. It beats even the 2007 boom. Um, the problem is that, as Larry McDonald of Traps Report has written very astutely, every single time that index has jumped above 60 in the last 15 years, there's then been an equity market correction, ranging from 10% in 2018 through to 47% in 2008. So if Donald Trump starts crowing about or celebrating that number, the reality is it probably suggests we're heading for something of a correction. So, Seema, what's an investor to do in that situation? You know, you need to sort of separate what's buy on the dip and what is get out of the way. <laughs> um, and, I mean, we have, we have those dialogues internally all the time uh, with every position and across the portfolios. Uh, and so, look, it's an active debate. You have to focus on it when you look at these numbers, clearly. Uh, but, you know, going back to what Mohamed el was talking about in terms of economic reality versus politics, um, it's hard to parse through that now, especially what's going on in our country when you hear these tweets and see these tweets. Um, so, again, we focus on the long term. A lot of our big clients are long-term investors. A lot of them are U.S. public pension plans that invest over 30-year periods. So we look to... Think longer term valuations, if you think about it, aren't as stretched, um, you know, relative to the past. And so, again, we're just sort of monitoring everything that's happening, but there's no hand on the trigger right now. And those pension plans, I suspect, are globally invested. So mm -hmm. if you're trying to get some of the upside but not take the risk, what does that tell you? Yeah, so, again, when I was the chief investment officer of the New York City Pension Fund many years ago, um, we had those conversations with our trustees. And you're right, we do invest globally and we invest over the long term. Uh, emerging markets, we put a lot of emphasis on that. And again, you can argue that the last several years have not been great to be an investor in emerging markets. But when you think about the long term and where the growth is, you know, even while China may go from 6% from Q4 of last year down to 4% in Q1 of this year because of what's been going on, what we've been talking about, 
um, it's still growing a lot faster than we are in a lot of parts of the world. And you know, look, like India is going to grow even faster than China. And so, again, you you may the valuations clearly have discounted emerging market equities, um, but does that mean you don't look at that as a long-term investment opportunity? I mean, the problem is that in a world where rates are so low and equity dividend yields for the S&P 500 are higher than bond yields, where you've essentially got companies buying back stocks wherever they can because um, money's so cheap, it's very tough to stay out of the equity market. Okay, we're going to be back with our contributors shortly. And you can check out what's coming up next week on Wall Street Week by heading to Bloomberg Market's official Twitter account. We'll have a poll each week focused on what you'd like to hear from our contributors. The results for this week are in. Europe is looking to put limits on big tech companies. Which area should regulators focus on first? A modest plurality, 29%, voted for breaking up monopolies. We'll talk big tech and regulation later in the program. This is Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, And it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I'm happy to report that the death of the Transatlantic Alliance is grossly over-exaggerated. The West is winning. We are collectively winning. That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo addressing the security conference over in Munich this week. But even as the secretary was reporting how strong the bonds are across the Atlantic, the United States was simultaneously threatening to cut off European allies from intelligence sharing if they insist on doing business with Chinese tech company Huawei. For our Wall Street Week Roundtable, we welcome now Jillian Tett. She's chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large for the Financial Times, and Seema Hingarani. She's managing director at Morgan Stanley. Our Wall Street Week interview today is with Ian Bremmer, one of those attending the Munich conference. Ian is the founder and president of the Eurasia Group, and we welcome him now. Great to have you here, Ian. Good to be with you guys. Oh, so, so, so square that circle for me. Uh, you know, we're all against China, and we're all together on this at the same time. We might cut you off if you keep doing with, business with China. Where are we? Well, I mean, the transatlantic relationship is not dead, but let's be clear. This is the most fundamental structural divide that we've seen since the creation of NATO. The Americans in attendance, not just the Trump administration, but the Democrats, the CODEL, the the congressional delegation, the senators, Pelosi, all of them were saying, you Europeans, China is the most significant national security threat for the United States. This is a wholesale pivot of the Americans towards Asia worried about China. There were no Europeans in agreement. So, there were none. So I saw the Nancy Pelosi statement, which was quite strong, actually, yes. came out. So, 
are they right? I mean, uh, is the Trump administration and the Democrats on the Hill right that Huawei is that perilous a threat to the United States' national security? I, I certainly believe that the reality of a decoupling in technology of the United States and China from one another, that our tech companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook don't have access into China, their companies are not going to get access into the U.S., and the Chinese will work to export their data, their standards, their surveillance to other countries. That's a shift away from globalization that has precipitous implications for the geopolitical balance. Clearly, I would argue that the rise of China as a committed state capitalist and authoritarian nation is the most important strategic threat to the U.S. But the fact that the Europeans want none of it, the fact that they don't trust the Americans because of the background of Snowden, for example, and our own surveillance, our unilateralism, Trump's orientation towards them on trade, the fact that we don't necessarily have a really strong alternative to Huawei right now <laughs> in the United States, the Europeans were saying, we're just not going there. And I have to say that if the Europeans aren't prepared to support the United States for what we consider to be the most important national security threat, you have to ask yourself why the Americans down the road would be providing the kind of security umbrella that we have heretofore and putting the money in to help the Europeans vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I, and I think that's an, a legitimate question that's going to be asked by Americans. But Ian, I'd love to ask you, as someone who moves back and forth between Europe and the U.S., I live in New York, but I obviously in London quite a lot as well, what do you think, as someone who knows China well, about the level of danger around Huawei? Is it really a tool of the Chinese government as Americans in Washington would all say? Uh, I certainly believe that um, the data that Huawei has access to will be made available to the Chinese government as they find that useful. So the strategic alignment, the idea that Huawei is a national champion in the way that Lockheed Martin has been a national champion of the U.S. government historically, at the very least, yes, I do believe that. But more importantly, I think when we talk about 5G, we're not just talking about smartphones. We're talking, as you know, about the Internet of Things. It's the entire data infrastructure around smart cities, anything with a chip in it. And the idea that that would be aligned to a Chinese set of standards as opposed to an American set of standards with our allies, even though it's cheaper, even though it's rolling out more quickly, does strike me as something the Americans need to take very seriously. So, Ian, this is what I don't get. It, thus far, I've only heard stick. If you don't play our game the way we want, then we're going to cut you off, yeah, right? right? Where's the carrot? I mean, part of the problem is, as you said, there's not alternatives in the That's United right. States for yeah. 5G. Why doesn't the United States invest in Nokia? Why doesn't it invest in Ericsson and things like that where we could together develop yeah. 5G and not need Huawei? Well, of course, this was the speech that was given by Attorney General Bill Barr, who has a telecom background, among other things, just two weeks ago. And he suggested, in addition to some urgent FCC decisions that would need to be made in terms of bandwidth made available to make 5G work, but also the idea that the Americans, a public sector supported consortium, industrial policy, dirty word for most Republicans. <laughs> Coming would, from a Republican government, let exactly. us say. Quite you know, free markets, hello. Right. <laughs> yeah. Except Republican governments during the Cold War yeah. were very supportive of the military-industrial complex. So what you have Barr saying is we need a military-industrial technological complex because the Chinese are fighting the Cold War very differently. And I understand that, but that's his one speech is not a policy. And you're absolutely right that the Europeans see a lot of money coming from Belt and Road particularly in the 17 plus one, the East and Southern Europeans with the Chinese. They, even the Italians, right, joined Belt and Road for a reason. The Brits are saying it's a cheaper system. 
why are we going to come to the U.S. unless it's something for us? They don't have the companies. So unless we're finding a way to help build up the Europeans as well, it's hard to imagine that they're going to simply say, yeah, we're going to go with you, America first, Trump. Okay, many thanks to Ian Bremmer from Eurasia Group. Coming up here, we're going to get a second opinion on the future of tech from Kim Liu, Carnegie Corporation Chief Investment Officer. This is Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We continue our roundtable with Jillian Tett, chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large for the Financial Times, and Seema Hingorani, managing director at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Tech wars seem to be breaking out around the world. Everything from the European Commission going after the likes of Facebook and Google and Twitter to the United States going after Huawei. The goose that's laid the golden egg of tech looks to be turning into a global prey, raising questions for investors about whether past performance in the tech industry can be relied upon in forecasting future results. For a second opinion, we welcome back an investor with a long-term perspective. She is Kim Liu. She's Chief Investment Officer of the Carnegie Foundation. Welcome back, Kim. Great to have you here. Nice to be here. So you are a longer-term investor. As you look at tech, which has driven so much of investment over recent years, uh, can you project that it will keep growing that way, given all the things that we've talked about, geopolitical risk, regulatory risk? I think one of the, the things that I speak about most with respect to tech is the fact that tech is everything. It's not just one sector. There's not a single sector you can think of that has not been affected by technology. So what exactly is the tech sector? Is it info, information technology or is it real estate? I mean, real estate is affected by tech. So I don't think that the, the tech trends are changing. I think um, how you invest in it and the ways you it's implemented may change, but tech is here. And it is changing the dynamics in ways that are really important. And I think that our regulations, the government, the way we think of things haven't kept up with technology. And that's causing the ripples and that's causing the problems because how exactly do you control technology? We, we're, we're struggling with how to do that. But I think one thing we've seen in tech is the network effect and the scale that benefits so enormously, whether it's a Google or it's a Facebook or perhaps we're seeing it now in the cloud really, with Amazon and Microsoft, something like that, where it's unusual. Typically, when you get too big, it starts to get too expensive. That doesn't seem to happen in tech. That's a different phenomenon. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with another problem we're having, which is the lack of inflation, right? I mean, it, it puts a lot of pressure on a lot of things that have sort of underpinned how long-term investors invest. There's certain things we rely on to make decisions as long-term investors. And the way we construct our portfolios have a lot to do with what, what we think will happen with different industries, with different governments, with regulations. And a lot of that's coming undone. And a lot of it has to do with technology. And a lot of it has to do with how people um, include it in their portfolios and think about it and how governments are thinking about regulating it. And I think that's going to be interesting to watch. But it's, I don't think the end of, that we're, we're looking for an end to technology or, or the impact that technology is going to have on markets. I think it's it's going to be a fundamental part of it. And if people don't understand it or have an opinion on how it'll affect different industries, different countries, the relationships between countries, the relationships between governments. I think, you know, you spent a lot of time earlier talking about China versus the United States and the two systems that they're uh, going to have to make force other countries to choose between. That's real, right? That's going to be a real significant part of how we think about investing because we used to think about it globally and now we're going to have to think about the countries that choose to align themselves with China versus the countries that choose to align themselves with the United States and and arguably those two different 
um, factions will be diversifiers for each other, but I, that's not exactly the way we've thought about it in the past, and so we're going to have to rethink. And I think that's going to be interesting to see who does it well and who doesn't. I think there's also, as you, um, I think, would agree, Kim, that in technology, I mean, over 10 years ago, there, where was a Facebook? Where were some of these companies? And Microsoft seems to be the one constant in technology throughout this time period. So over the next decade, you could argue who's going to be the next big tech company tech company. Uh, you mentioned the cloud. That's a huge thing. Now you've got all these other companies, these smaller companies that can grow because of the cloud because the costs were too prohibitive for these um, smaller companies to grow. So I think 10 years from now, who knows who will be the bigger tech company. Well, the fundamental challenge is, is there going to be a platform shift before there's a regulatory tipping point where governments come in to actually try and break down some of these large companies um, or whether national security interests are going to predominate but I think investors and economists and policymakers are really struggling to get their heads around this because I'm actually trained as a cultural anthropologist, um, not an economist, and the tech sector is very hard to measure or track using traditional economic tools that look at money because so much of the transactions are based on barter of services for data which are not captured through money. And antitrust regulators can't really cope with this because all of their methodology is based on whether consumer prices are rising or falling to see if there's a monopoly. Economists can't count this stuff, so our GDP figures and our inflation figures could be completely out of whack. And I think also investors are having trouble trying to work out what is actually the value of a company where almost everything is intangible and based on things like barter rather than actual economic numbers. It's a really powerful point I had not thought of before in this sense. Some people are saying we should have rate regulation. It's like the railroads, where you just start regulating the rates because they're so big, you can't get your arms around it. But if it's really barter, it's much, much harder to rate regulation if it's not, not denominated in dollars and cents. I couldn't agree more, and I am firmly of the opinion, opinion that we have to turn around and say very clearly, this is barter. And we have to recognize the real problem today is actually not that it's an entirely one-way trade, because it's not. We're giving up mm -hmm. data for services. But, but is, are the terms of trade for regulators clear to both sides, and are they fair? And at the moment, there's so much opacity and confusion around the debate, that issue isn't even being discussed properly. I think that's exactly view. right. I think that's a lot, exactly right. Because we, we absolutely looked at these companies and we looked at these industries from a traditional lens and then realized later, oh, I was trading something that I didn't realize I was trading. Right? And, and, when you, and then you're like, I priced it wrong because I should have I made them pay more for this thing that I was giving them. Um, but now it's too late, right? But, like but, but as you construct and reconstruct your portfolio and look at the longer-term returns, how do you take into account the fact that everything is tech? As you said, it, in a sense, everything's tech. But how does it influence your decisions about what to invest in and what not to invest in? I think what, I, what we're trying to do is think about where there's going to be value. Because ultimately, I do think at some point, the market recognizes value. And so technology is going to destroy value from, for some industries and it's going to create value for others. And so we're trying to figure out which, which companies, which countries, which industries are going to benefit from the fact that technology is pervasive versus which ones are going to come undone as a result of technology. And, and as a long-term investor, that predictability becomes important. And so there is a little bit, you know, to the point of you guys were talking about uh, ESG earlier, and that's an industry that for sure is going to be swayed pretty significantly because of technology, because that's what's going to make it possible for people to get comfortable with solutions to climate change. So, Seema, where do you find value as an investor at Morgan Stanley? Um, so, again, we, uh, we talk to our clients about 
long-term investing because they're all long-term investors, similar to how Kim is. Um, and, you know, from that standpoint, we try to invest through a lot of the ups and downs of the market. So, again, we focus on global companies, global franchises that, uh, you know, build value over time, compound over time, uh, that have will consistently have pricing power because of that, you know, um, marketplace uh, stance that they have globally. Um, and that, we think, is just the a better long-term way to think about investing. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot easier to talk to clients about the long-term than try to get them focused on these short-term vibrations in the market, which you need to pay attention to clearly. But, um, but again, you know, we're investors over the long-term. I love the word vibration. <laughs> I get a very happy feeling to the stock market. You know, don't worry about the crash. It's just the vibration. Yeah. It's interesting that when we're talking about value, you're not talking about value versus growth. You're talking about no. intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. So you're not saying something that you're going for value stocks rather than growth stocks. Right. No. I'm talking about the fact that there, there is um, underlying value that, that's worth owning that's going to be created by some technologies, and there's going to be some destroying of value. It was a really interesting conversation I had with a young man recently where he was telling me, and I I love talking to young people because they give you a totally different perspective, and his perspective was that the companies who don't make very much profits are the ones that have the moat because it reduces competition. (laughs) That's why Amazon's winning, right? Because who wants to, who can compete against them when their margins are so thin and that so it's an interesting dynamic that's been made by technology i mean technology has made that possible for where them to create a moat around themselves that way right and amazon i mean really what is it it's a logistics company it's a logistics company right exactly not a retailer right. maybe it was in the beginning but clearly it's a logistics company yeah who would have thought okay <laughs> many thanks to kim lu from carnegie We've taken a look at the week just passed on Global Wall Street. Now let's look forward to what's coming up next week in the world of business and finance. So, Seema, I'm going to start with retail because we have a lot of retail earnings coming out. We'll get some sense of how retailers are doing. What are you predicting we'll see this week in terms of the strength of retail and the consumer? Um, I can say broadly the U.S. consumer seems to be in pretty good shape still. Um, We've got very low unemployment. We've got rising wages. That's all good for the U.S. consumer. Um, but we're likely to see a differential amongst the retailers out there in terms of their performance, uh, especially when you have Amazon Prime coming out with their one-day delivery. Well, that's one of the questions is what the bifurcation between, as they say, bricks and mortar and online are, although that's getting merged to some extent. And I think, I think it gets even bigger than that where the big just keep getting bigger, yeah. right? The bigger retailers just keep... Well, this is a really good point, and that applies to Walmart and Target and stuff as well as to Amazon. Absolutely. I mean, Walmart has certainly cast a bit of a chill um, on the market um, Mm -hmm. because it has not done as well as people had hoped. Um, There's a lot of people are in the consumer pretty nervously these days because all roads have led to the consumer in the global economy, frankly, in the last year. Um, American CapEx has been pretty weak. Businesses have not been flying. But consumer is essentially what's kept the American economy so buoyant. And if there's any sign that that's starting to come off the boil in any way, that's going to create reverberations um, around the world, potentially. Um, So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to the retail um, sector. Okay. This week, we'll find out what happened in the retail sector. Many thanks now to our contributors, Seema Hingarani and Jillian Tatt. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.